Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 59, Revenge by Any Other Name. Last time, as the Japanese and Manchukuoan forces had been driven out of the 10-mile area between the Haha River and Nomaham, the Kwangtung Army's headquarters started making plans for their revenge. Their assumed premise still held, at least in their minds, that Soviet Russia would not risk anything major in this sector, as war seemed to be coming to Europe. This reading of the tea leaves, as it were, was read differently by the Russians. In Moscow, they desired to have the Far East pacified, so their focus could remain in the West. But this did not mean temerity, but rather tenaciousness, in bringing any troublemakers to heel. And at the moment, the Kwangtung were busy making themselves into troublemakers. The man picked by the Soviets to pacify the area was an up-and-coming cavalry and tank commander, one Gregory Zukov. The Stalinist purges were coming to an end, and Zukov had survived that, not because of political correctness, but rather by building a reputation as a man who got things done, perhaps heavy-handed at times, but he got results. On June 1st, Zukov, the deputy commander of the Bilo-Russian military district, got a call to report to Minsk the next day to see Marshal Clement Voroshilov, the commissioner of defense. When the two were together, Zukov was ordered to head to the troubled area, assess, report, and, if necessary, to take over command of the Mongol forces, until the threat there had passed over, or was pacified. By the afternoon of June 5th, Zukov landed at Tamsag Bulak, the newly established headquarters of the Soviet 57th Corps. Bringing all the officers together, Zukov proclaimed to all that the current commander of the 57th was out of touch with the situation and the times. So were most of his men. In fact, the only one there that impressed Zukov was the regimental commissar Nikisev, and it would be him and only him with Zukov who would go to the war zone and assess the situation. Zukov had been told by the commissar of defense not to pull any punches in his assessment and reports back to Moscow. That did not come as a problem to the deputy commander. Having toured the area, Zukov reported back that the recent Japanese offensive had not been a simple border clash, but something larger, and it was his opinion that they would be back in larger numbers. Further, the current complement of Soviet and MPR forces would not be enough. He recommended that a holding action be undertaken in the area east of the Haha River until substantial reinforcements could be brought forward enough for their own counteroffensive. Moscow took the man at his word. Its judgment came back the next day. The 57th Corps commander was out, and Zukov was his replacement. His new command would be augmented with the following. The 36th Mechanized Infantry Division, which was the 7th, 8th, and 9th Mechanized Brigades, the 11th Tank Brigade, the 8th MPR Cavalry Division, a heavy artillery regiment, and a tactical air wing of more than 100 airplanes. 
including a group of 21 pilots who had previously won combat citations, as heroes of the Soviet Union while in Spain. Zhukov's command was renamed First Army Group. So much for the Japanese perceived advantage. During early June, these units made their way to Zhukov's headquarters, Tamsag Bulak, some 80 miles west of the Halha. And probably because of this distance, not to mention Kwantung overconfidence and a lack of reconnaissance, Komatsubara, the leader of the 23rd Division, stationed just north of Nomaham, had no idea what was in store for him. During that same time, the Russians, per Zhukov, built up the bridgehead on the east side of the river, yet stayed in close, not wanting to incite a response. Just yet. And because they stayed close to the river, the Japanese nor Manchurian forces interfered. Believing this entire episode closed, Kwangtung Commander General Yudei left to tour northern Manchuria, and things stayed quiet, that is, until the day after his return. Getting back on June 18th, Ueda settled down to reorient himself with the goings-on of the rest of Manchuria, when on the very next day, June 19th, he received a urgent message from Komatsubara. Manchukuo had been attacked by Soviet air power. And most of this was true. Two Soviet air units had attacked Manchurian territory, true enough. The report said that Kemchurmio, a major urban military location from whence the recent Japanese attack originated, was bombed. But that wasn't true. An area miles from it, with some 3,000 civilians, was attacked. And it wasn't bombed, but strafed as the planes flew over. A few horses and Manchukuoan men had died. The report also said that Arshan, a major railway station some 100 miles southeast of Nomaham, was bombed as well. This, too, was true on the surface. There were actually two Arshans in the area. One, the major rail center, the other, a nothing village near Kanchermio. It was the smaller and less important of the two that was again strafed and not bombed. But Komatsubara had been purposefully vague on that account. Indeed, anyone reading this report would think this was a Soviet precursor to war. But why did Zhukov order these attacks? Was it to get back at the enemy for their air raid in mid-May that hit the Mongolian border outpost number 17? Was it to further secure his new enlarged bridgehead? We will never know the real reason. But one thing was clear. As the Japanese forces had not been the subject of an air raid since taking Manchuria, the Kwangtung leadership was incensed. Any clear thinking would now be mixed with deep emotions. To prove this, from the time of the report to debating whether they should counterattack, to someone else recommending caution, to someone else replying that if we don't attack the Russians and the British, i.e. the situation at Tianjin, and we'll cover that in a minute, they will think that we're weak and continue to resist us. To someone saying, okay, but who should have this honor? Not the 23rd Division. They cocked it up last time with their latest attack. To which someone said, it had to be the 23rd. They were responsible for that area around Nomaham. To finally someone and then everyone okaying the whole damn thing. Provided that the weaker 23rd would lead the attack. All this took one day. 
Nay, not even one. It was more like just the morning and the early afternoon. Such was the anger and desire for revenge among the Kwangtung headquarters. Oh, and Tokyo was completely left out of this. This was another example of Geiko Kujo, or as has been said in the West, the tail wagging the dog. At this time, the British legation in Tientsin was surrounded by Japanese troops, and inside were four Chinese men accused of killing a Japanese officer. Chamberlain believed this would lead to war between the Japanese and the United Kingdom, and so wanted a major portion of the Royal Navy sent to Asia. But France, Britain's partner, would not countenance that, with war coming to Europe, and if Mussolini jumped in, into the Mediterranean. So this going on was the tension-filled background that helped the Kwangtung army decide their actions. Now that the Kwangtung headquarters had decided on war, it was time to bring the attacking forces together. Komatsubara's 23rd Division, which desperately wanted to redeem itself, would be reinforced by the following. The 2nd Air Group, with 180 planes. The Yasuoka Detachment, with two regiments of medium and light tanks, a motorized artillery regiment, and the 7th Division's highly trained and experienced 26th Infantry Regiment, all told some 15,000 men, 120 artillery and anti-tank guns, 70 tanks, and again, 180 aircraft. And the Japanese leadership believed these men would be going up against the 1,000 men 10 guns, and 10 or so armored cars of the Soviet NPR forces known to be stationed around the Halha and the Soviet bridge. In fact, so confident and eager were the Japanese that they pulled back their air reconnaissance, lest they tipped their hand to the Soviets. And just to give a glimpse into the mindset of the Japanese at this time, the ordnance chief, a full colonel no less, killed himself on the night before the battle, so ashamed was he that he could not provide this glorious undertaking with better artillery. As June came to a close, with both sides building up their forces, each side planning on their own offensives, yet not knowing of the other's labors, the Japanese military attaché in Moscow, Colonel Dio, stopped by Kwangtung's headquarters on his way to Tokyo, and the news he had to impart liked the Kwangtung leaders not. Besides the NPR forces operating in the area, there were now two Soviet divisions. So the attack plan put before him was inadequate. The operations staff poo-pooed this report, saying it was disloyal to talk of such things, as the attack would soon be launched. In truth, Zhukov now had some 12,500 men, 109 artillery and anti-tank guns, 186 tanks, 266 armored cars, and more than 100 aircraft. It was the preponderance of Russian tanks that should have caused the most concern, given the relatively flat land near the Haha and Nomaha. But the Japanese had their own plans, and believed they would conquer all before them. The idea was really just a souped-up version of the previous attack, and we have seen this kind of thing before, this lack of imaginative tactical thinking in North Africa. The men of the 23rd would take control of a section of hills called the Fui Hills, about 11 miles north of the Soviet bridge, 
build pontoon boats, and cross the Hauha River. They would come south along the western side of the river, clearly in Mongolian territory, and drive all before them to the bridge. Meanwhile, the Yasuoka detachment, starting from those same heights, would come south along the eastern side of the river and drive all before them as well to the bridge. There, all the Soviet and NPR forces would be destroyed. On June 20th, Tsuji put the attack plans before General Komatsubara, who was moved to tears at being given this responsibility. Here was a chance to remove the shame of his failure in May. The two men also discussed the pontoon bridges the 23rd were to build the night before they crossed the river. Clearly, these bridges would not be able to hold their armor, and if these bridges were destroyed by Soviet air power, there wasn't enough material to build more, certainly if they wanted to attack soon. So the Kwangtung representative took a flight towards the Soviet base some 80 miles to the west. There he saw the buildup of Soviet air power and took this information back to the Kwangtung headquarters. That same night, it was decided that a preemptive airstrike was their only chance to negate the Soviet air power that threatened their bridges. Now it was time to inform Tokyo of their plans, but they did so, again, in half measures. They mentioned the Soviet airstrikes, the need for a reprisal, but they did not mention, of course, their own pre-attack airstrike, deep in NPR territory. But even this nugget of an attack caused anxiety. Soon, representatives from the Army General Staff and the Army Ministry were closeted together in a room. This conversation wasn't much longer than the one at Kwangtung headquarters. The plan, with its half-hidden measures, was approved. As the attack was to commence on July 1st, the air raid was scheduled to take place a few days before. But then word of this leaked out to other members of the Army General Staff. A radioed conversation took place between Helsinking, Kwangtung headquarters, and Tokyo. The gist was that Tokyo was not happy and was in fact sending a representative to Helsinking on June 25th. This rebuke had come from the deputy chief of the army general staff himself. But the men of the Kwangtung were not to be so put off. Word of the politely worded order to stand down was not made known, and instead the air attack was moved up to commence on the same day that the AGS representative, Lieutenant Colonel Ayisi, arrived, which was delayed for two days by bad weather. The Japanese air attack on the air bases at Tamsak Bulak were a complete success due to its unexpectedness. The incoming 120 planes bombed and machine-gunned many Soviet planes on the ground. The surviving Soviet planes then tried to take off to either give combat or to escape. But as they were lifting off in small numbers, they were torn into by the larger organized Japanese fighters and bombers. Some 98 planes of different makes were destroyed, while another 51 or so were seriously damaged, which would now not be able to thwart the coming attack near the river. Word of this successful Japanese attack got back to Moscow, but Azukov was the one reporting and he knew of Stalin's paranoia, 
the deputy commander of the Mongolian army and the former deputy commander of the 57th Corps were blamed, placed under arrest, and sent to Moscow. The Mongolian army commander was shot out of hand, but the former deputy commander of the 57th Corps, Khrushchev, was not. He was imprisoned for four years, but then one day he was freed, and he would end the war as a great hero of the Patriotic War. Back at Kwangtung headquarters, the operations section, thrilled beyond belief at their success, which had planned the attack, ran as one man to the communications room to inform Colonel Ieda, head of the Army General Staff Operations Section. The colonel, known for wanting war with Russia, waited for a couple seconds after being told of the events and replied, You damned idiot! What do you think will be the real meaning of this little success of yours? The tirade went downhill from there. Hours later, the official rebuke reached Manchukuo. The Kwangtung army would restrict themselves to the current policy and not undertake such actions again without first clearing it with Tokyo. But such was the indignation of the men in Manchuria. Messages were going back to Tokyo, not from the army's head, General Ieda, but they basically said, you don't know what's going on here, so you don't understand. Don't tell us what to do. The Army General Staff realized something had to be done about these renegades. But first they had to inform the Emperor. For him, it was simple. He wanted those responsible, sacked. However, the men in uniform protected each other, and the Emperor was told that, for now, operations were still ongoing, but that, after everything settled down, those responsible would be dealt with. Still, something had to be done with Kwangtung headquarters. So, on June 29th, a directive was sent to Helsinkin. The Kwangtung would bring about a settlement of this current border dispute that they probably started. If any future border dispute could not be dealt with by local measures, then no action was to be taken. All future ground combat would be limited to the area between the river and Nomaha. And lastly, enemy bases would no longer be attacked from the air. The results of this directive are easy to predict. The Kwangtung operation staff, to a man, decided to no longer send any reports of worth to Tokyo. There had been those on the staff who were uncomfortable with defying their leaders. That uneasiness was gone. The desk jockeys on the main islands did not understand their situation. The Kwangtung had been given the responsibility of defending Manchuria, and they would not shirk their duty. To allow the Soviets to invade and take land that belonged to those of the rising sun was unthinkable. The ground assault would go on as before. Japanese air reconnaissance was curtailed as to not tip their hand to the Soviets, or, quite frankly, to Tokyo. Still, what pilots were sent out reported large numbers of trucks heading west, that is, away from the Haha River and Tamsag Bulak. Obviously, this was a Soviet pullout, which motivated the Kwangtung to move up their attack, as to be able to kill as many of the enemy as they could catch. Actually, the trucks heading west were empty. They were simply returning from carrying supplies and reinforcements to the 57th Divisional Base 
and the river during the night. Zhukov was being given all the help General Grigory Stern, the commander of the Soviet forces in the Far East, could give. Yet the Soviets, because they had lost so many planes recently, were equally ignorant of what the Japanese were up to. In late June, General Komatsubara's 23rd Division and Yasuoka's tank force deployed from Halar, and even though every civilian vehicle was appropriated, most of the infantry had to walk to their jumping-off points. This meant six days of walking in the hot sun with 80-pound packs. They would not have time to fully recover before they were launched. And because the Japanese had pulled back on their air reconnaissance, they still believed, as the attack started in early June, that their 15,000 men, 120 guns, and 70 tanks would only be engaging, at first, around 1,000 men, with 10 anti-aircraft guns, 10 artillery pieces, and several dozen tanks. Zhukov, for his part, guessed that the massive air raid of June 27th wasn't for nothing. Something was coming their way. So he moved his 11th Tank Brigade, 7th Mechanized Brigade, and 24th Mechanized Infantry Regiment from their holding area near Tamsak Bulak to a position just west of the Halha River during the night of July 1st. During this part of the year, the sun rose over Nomaham at 4 a.m. and sank at 9 p.m. And at 4 a.m. of July 1st, the infantry of the 23rd Division, some 15,000 strong, began their eight-mile walk to their final jumping-off point.